Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our webinar, LinkedIn and Smart Selling Strategies. In it, we discuss the best practices for networking and generating opportunities on LinkedIn. You will walk away from the webinar with a game plan for moving new leads down the pipeline using consultative selling and other smart selling strategies. Make sure to download a copy of the webinar. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod274. It's a webinar replay, so you can watch it anytime you want. (laughs) This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I am really excited about today's guest. It's going to be a fun conversation. He is the founder and CEO of Pursuing Results, a done-for-you sort of a podcast agency. He also hosts the Microfamous podcast, and he's a co-host of the Real Estate Uncensored podcast, so he's all about podcasting. He has a lot of experience in sales and in marketing and consulting, and he is the author of a book called Microfamous, Become Famously Influential to the Right People. He is based in one of my favorite cities in the country, San Diego, California. I've got a sister and a brother-in-law and two baby nephews there that I need to see at some point (laughs) soon. Um, So we're so glad to have you here, Matt Johnson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I really am glad that we could have you join us on the podcast. And I think our listeners are going to really enjoy our conversation. But before we jump into kind of the bulk of what we're talking about, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. I just shared the highlights of your bio, but I know that's not kind of who you are as a person. Yeah. And I'd love to hear, you know, where did you develop the passion for what it is that you're doing? What were some key stops on the journey to get where you are today? I know that was a big question to kind of take it mm-hmm. wherever you want. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, well, just a kind of where I'm at today, I run a team that produces and launches podcasts for like a very specific type of person, which is that that person who's driven to teach, train, and lead, right? So mm-hmm. they whether they call themselves coaches, consultants, trainers, speakers, writers, authors, like I don't really care. Um, there's a thousand different terms, but like if you're driven to teach, train, and lead, like you're my person. And so that's like I basically built, I, I set out to build a business that gives me that sense of fulfillment, like right within the business itself by helping people that have amazing content get in touch with the people who should know about them, but don't know they exist yet. So that's kind of my thing. Um, I'm able to run the agency uh, because we're very, very systematic. And because we sell just one thing to one type of person, we're able to be so systematic that I run the agency in around three to four hours a week, which leaves all this extra. I mean, that's how I wrote the book. That's how I host the podcast like that to me is it's not management or leadership time. It's like it's marketing, biz dev, networking, whatever you want to call it. But it's essentially my time to decide how I want to grow the business because the management of it only takes me a couple hours a week. Um, Now, flash back five years or so, I was just some dude working in a marketing agency. So the short story of how I got here is I got into doing webinars on Google Hangouts when that first came out. One of the people that was like an industry influencer in that space uh, called me up one day and said like, hey man, we have a great time doing these webinars together. Have you ever thought about turning it into a podcast? And at that point, I was like, thinking about calling him up the next week and pitching him the same idea. So the time, the timing was really good. What's funny about it is we had no business plan other than he wanted to offer some coaching and I wanted to maybe build some training products for people in that space. And so we basically started like a coaching training company together and we started podcasting behind the scenes. I started consulting with other coaches and ended up in a partner in another company, launched another podcast with him, same space, totally different market though. One, like the first show I started was really general interviewed anybody who was anybody in that space. We just had a good time. It was almost like morning radio for that industry. And that was a lot of fun. It got a lot of downloads. It's a million and a half downloads right now. It got a bunch of accolades in the industry, got a lot of attention, generated a lot of speaking engagements, yada, yada. However, 
the smaller podcast that didn't get all the accolades and didn't get all the downloads and didn't get all the attention generated and built a multi six-figure coaching consulting business in like two years out of nothing with <laughs> you know zero social media presence, super small, like tiny email list. Like it was such a stark contrast. It was so much easier to monetize that smaller, more focused show. And so I basically did a deep dive into why was that? And I started to apply those lessons to other clients and steer them in those directions. And out of that came all the core concepts that ended up being in the Microfamous book. So that's kind of the short story. Everything in between there is just me podcasting a lot and working with a lot of coaches and consultants, trying to refine those ideas, testing what works, figuring out why it works, and then extracting from that, what are the principles that anybody that wants to be Microfamous can apply um, and how do we actually become microfamous without just spending all day on social media, which is exactly what my clients do not want to do. Exactly. Well, it's almost like you know what you're doing with podcasts because you led me right into the next thing that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> so you have touched on this word a couple of times, and I'm sure some of us probably could kind of just get it from the context and it, it makes sense when you hear it. But I'd love if you could really take a, a bit of a deep dive into this. Um, you're using the word microfamous. It's the name of your book. What is the concept of microfamous? What does that mean to you and why is it so important? So first of all, what it means to me is to be famously influential to the right people. So when you break that down, famously influential means that people know exactly who you are. So you're a Tom Cruise level famous to a certain group of people, right? But that not just that you're famous, but that you're influential in the sense that when you give a piece of advice, it doesn't just roll off people's backs. They go, oh, I need, like, I need to take action on that. So that, to me, that's what makes up being famously influential. Now, if you're going to choose to be famously influential to a certain group of people and not everyone, right? If you're going to go after a smaller group of people, then, well, then you have to get more specific and intentional about who that group of people is. And to me, the right people is your ideal clients and the people who could be ideal clients if they were exposed to the right content over time. That's how I define the right people. And, and for me, like my, my right people, those coaches and consultants, that's the types of folks that they want in their audience and in their world. They want the people that are the ideal clients now, the people that should buy their service, and then they want the people that could be ideal clients down the road if they get exposed to the right information, education, inspiration, you know, all that fun stuff. And, and so if we, if we think about it that way, the reason why it's so important is because we all have this common opponent, and that's the noise. It's the noise of everyone trying to sell something to someone online. And we have to remember that the users are not there for that. That's not what they're there on podcasting. That's not what they're there for social media. Like they're there to get something for themselves, not for us to sell a product or service to them. So they're constantly tuning out advertisements. Like Seth Godin said, the, you know, basically the web is the most distrustful advertising platform that has ever existed. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and he's so right about that. And it gets worse every day. Uh, it's because of the noise. So the question is, well, then how do you cut through the noise? Well, that that's where the micro famous comes in. We can go down that road. But in terms of like why it's so important, it's important because if you have a change that you want to make in the world, if you want to teach, train, and lead people, the only way that's going to happen is if you make sales. Like no change happens unless somebody buys your product or service and you can get involved and you can help them get results. Especially if you're a, you know, a consultant, a trainer, a coach, you know, someone who needs to get in there, roll up your sleeves and work with the client to get results. None of that happens until you make sales and you're not going to make sales if you can't get attention in a way 
that gets people to respect you and want to buy from you at some point. Absolutely. So if I were to kind of distill a lot of what you're saying, um, I love that you use Seth Godin as an example. You don't need to be Seth Godin, right? People across yep. all different industries know who he is. Everybody reads his books, his blog, you know, all kinds of other stuff. But you need to be the Seth Godin of whatever industry it is that you're in. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you focus on automotive, everybody in automotive needs to know who you are. If you focus yep. on real estate, everybody in real estate needs to know who you are. If you focus on, I don't know, luxury boats. Everybody in luxury boats needs to know who you are. And it's just really understanding who those people are and then getting in front of them, getting into their ears, getting in front of their eyeballs, um, whatever it is. Uh, and and I think so many of us get confused and we think we need to be competing with Seth Godin. And it's like, that's, yeah. that's you know, a, a ridiculous concept. And oh, it's, it's, yes. it's, you know, it's going to be too hard for most people. And even if they did that, they would be spending so much time and effort you know, in front of people who aren't even their ideal customers now or in the future. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. And and I think when we've taken, we've taken the advice essentially that we have to be everywhere and, and be everything to everyone. Uh, and there's a constant pull to that. So, so I get it. You know, people are constantly pulling us off track. Internally, we feel that pressure. Externally, we feel that pressure. You know, if we listen to the Gary V's and Grant Cardone's in the, of the world, we feel that pressure. So it's understandable. But the, the people that are on the receiving end of that message, they want something that's geared as specifically for them as possible. So one great example, just coming out of the space that I'm in, because I've dealt with a lot of real estate coaches, is there are some really amazing, amazing real estate coaches, and they know exactly how to grow a seven-figure real estate business that you can run in a couple of hours a week, because I know multiple people that have done it. But if they try to go out and compete with Gary Vee and tell every real estate agent in the world what to do, they're going to get lost in the noise. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is to focus very exclusively on the people that are the most receptive to that message, which is a, a much smaller group of the market that have a real need for that message. And so uh, to me, the answer is start by by shrinking the battlefield is what I call it in the book. But essentially, you are getting really, really clear about who you're speaking to and thinking about what message is going to make a difference to them and jump out to them because everyone wants something that's specific to them. You know, uh, it's very rare actually to have a Seth Godin or a Simon Sinek who has this message that cuts across all industries. Now, they do come along, but man alive, that's a once in a generation thing. Um, Peter Drucker is a once in a generation kind of guy, and it's very difficult to be that person. But if you shrink the battlefield and you say, I don't need to be Peter Drucker or Seth Godin to all these different industries, I can be the person in my industry. And even within that, I can go more niche than that. And I can go to the most valuable slice of my market and see, okay, who are the early adopters? Who are the affluent? Or who are the people that are the most successful in my space that are always trying something new? Let's go to them instead. Because what's funny about it is when you go to those people first, it forces your product or service to get better. It gives you the breathing room to experiment to make it better without you know pissing your clients off, essentially, because they're used to that. They can handle that. And then when you do get something that works, you get an amazing advocate for you who already has respect in the market so that when they go out and speak and say, yeah, I've been working with Matt Johnson on this podcast thing, everybody else sits up and goes, ooh, I want to talk to that. Who's that Matt guy? You know, <laughs> uh, And that, that happened to me all the time in, in the early days um, just by going deep into one sub niche of my industry space. 
So when I would jump on a sales call with a client and they would look at my website and they go, oh man, like I know him and I know him and I know her and I know her. Like they knew all of my clients because they were close enough in the same space that it just completely obliterated any credibility I problem I had. They couldn't have known me from Adam before they showed up to that call. All they had to know is who have I worked with? And they go, okay, yep, you're on the Cool Kids Club. Absolutely. And there are so many different ways that you could target that. It could even be a geographical, you know, if you've got, um, you know, if you don't want to travel too far outside your area, how can you target the people closest to you geographically? And you can do that through a lot of different ways, um, including things like podcasts, but you really have to think about um, just, uh, you know, like you said, what's the most valuable slice to you and valuable could be most money, but it also could be most convenient. It could be, um, you know, most connected to the next industry I want to move into, whatever it might yeah. be. Um, really is just getting that definition. And I love what you said about how that gives you space to be better. Something that we often see when we're working with clients is, um, especially when you're starting out, it's so tempting to try to be everything to everybody. If somebody wants to pay you to do something for them, you're going to do it. It, it doesn't matter <laughs> if it's completely outside the scope of what your company is for. You're like, well, there's money and we need money and that will pay the rent or that will pay the salaries. And so you get pulled in so many different directions. And what that forces is you're never, you know, it's jack of all trades, master of none is an expression for a reason. And instead, if you can just do one thing and do it really well, or even just do three things that are related and do three things really well, that's a whole lot better than trying to do 50 things and doing none of them very well. And it's, it, it's even easier, you know, when you have a focused, um, a focused message, a focused product, you can build a team around that. If you're trying to do too many different things, you're going to need to have people with too many different skill sets. Then one market goes down, you're firing people. It, it's just chaotic. And yes. so often it's, it's easy to get tempted to do that. And a part of the reason for that is you've got this broad marketing message that's having people come to you with these strange requests. If instead you're, you're getting out there with a very clear message to the right people who need to buy the one thing that you want to sell them, you're not going to probably get a ton of weird requests to do all kinds of strange things that you didn't intend your company to do. <laughs> Instead, people know, you know, this person provides coaching in my industry. I need coaching in my industry. I will hire them to coach in my industry. I'm not going to hire them to, you know, be a clown at a birthday party because that's not what they do. <laughs> and it's, it's so funny to me how people don't realize that they are the ones who are kind of creating those you know, the, the requests outside the scope of their business, but, yes. but they're setting up a situation that's going to drive that. And then they're getting kind of buffeted by all the winds around them, as opposed to just yeah, having a true. focused direction of growth. Yeah. And, and I've, I've thought a lot about this and I have a, a theory on this. I don't, I don't think this is in the book, so I'll, I'll run it by you and see what you think. Um, the, the hard part that people have with focusing on like selling that, like selling the one thing to the one type of person is, when you, when you see that person who comes to you and they have a name and a face and they say, I would like you to do X for, the, for me and I will pay you money to do that. Like because that person is right in front of you and they're, a, they're an actual human being and they have a name and a face and there's a real check that's on the line, it's really hard to turn that down because what's the flip side of it? You don't have another person that's right in front of you going, yeah, but I want you to pay me to do, and I, you know, I, I want you to do your bread and butter service for me and I'm willing to pay you exactly what you want for that. Like that person is out there and there's probably a lot of them out there, but they don't have names and faces yet because they're like out there in the market. And that's like the hardest thing to do is to turn down the person who has a name and a face and wants to hand you a check today 
to go after the person who doesn't have a name and a face yet because they're out there in the market and they'll hand you a check next week or next year. But what I learned from like being around all these really successful coaches and consultants is the ones that build seven figure businesses versus just a six figure one, just to kind of give you like a microcosm example, like the ones that are really successful from the somewhat successful are those people. They're the ones that can turn down the paycheck today from the unfocused client. They'll say no so that they can say yes to the right person tomorrow. And then they go out and figure out a way to find that person. It's like a senior version of the the marshmallow test. <laughs> we can oh delay God, that yeah. gratification. That is so um, true. But that that rang so incredibly true to me because it's it's completely understandable. You know that mm-hmm. if you are starting a business, um, typically you're not going to have a ton of money. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. you, you've got enough money to start your business, but it's not like you feel okay turning down business and i think there's a part of that that's just the natural you know again you have to pay the bills and then there's a part of it also like you said a person with a name and a face like it's hard and weird sometimes to say no to people and and we all like to think that we can do just about anything and so somebody asks you for something you're like i I could do that i could do that pretty successfully i'm sure it would work out just fine and it's like no that's not what you're in business for like that's you know it's perfectly fine that 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 they need that but um you could even make an introduction to them where they can get that somewhere else if you're getting a common request for something tangential to your business all right well i think we've emphasized the importance of microfamous but now let's talk about how do you become microfamous? Whether you're an individual looking to be microfamous or even a company that wants to be microfamous within your industry, what are some of the big kind of principles and best practices that you should follow? Okay. Well, so the first thing to know is in, in the book, one of the best chapters, I think, in that book and the one that seems to have the biggest effect on people is called The Three Stages of Influence. So I'll go through that real quick, and then we'll talk about how that applies to organizations because it's easy to see how it applies to individuals because you've watched it with Tony Robbins and Seth Godin and Gary Vee and all these people, which is that first stage is when people just see you. You know, It was Gary Vee circa 2006 on YouTube. right? People are just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. He's doing something cool. Um, but then you keep on being consistent and you hit that next stage where you are recognized, right? And you go, oh, people are going, oh, that's okay. It's wine library TV, or they're seeing Seth Godin, you know, they're seeing his third book, his fourth book, his fifth book, right? Or you're seeing John Maxwell, his 27th book on leadership. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but people are starting to go, okay, I, I, I know that guy. I know what he writes about. I know what he talks about. I know what what his thing is. Then you hit that tipping point where the market agrees with with you, that you have now owned that space, that you are known for that thing, right? Tony Robbins hit that tipping point and all of a sudden he is the guru in the self-development space. Or, you know, John Maxwell hits the tipping point and all of a sudden he's the leadership guy. And if you're putting on an event and you want somebody, some keynote to speak on leadership, it's John Maxwell and then there's a whole bunch of other people, right? Um, that's that. That's what I would call the tipping point where you hit that third stage of influence where you are known for what you do. You're known for the stand that you've taken, the problem that you solve, the word that you own, whatever that is for you, but you are known for the thing that you want to become known for. Now, the difference between doing that as an individual and doing that as an organization is it's a little tougher for an organization. So the for the smaller organizations, I would encourage the, like typically it's the CEO, you know, that needs to go out there and be that thought leader, you know, um, 
Mark Benioff with Salesforce, right? He was the one out there saying like, look, your CRM should be in the cloud. If it's not in the cloud, you're a loser. You know, stop using the, stop using SAP, start, stop using everything else. Like if you're, you're, if sales, if you're not using Salesforce, if your CRM is not in the cloud, like you are behind the times. Like he was the one that evangelized that point of view. He was the thought leader, not only of his company, but he ended up being the thought leader of his space. So to me, that's, that's really the easiest way to do it is to have that that CEO be out there and be that person. But if your CEO isn't that person, or if you have an organization where uh, that's just not the structure of it, and the, the organization itself needs to be that, there are ways to do it. Um, there's a great little example from the book. There's a company called Brandios. And I guarantee you, you've never heard of it. Um, it is a graphic design and branding consultancy, specifically for minor league sports teams. <laughs> So they started off literally as college guys in their dorms, the two co-founders, and they sent a letter to 150 different minor league baseball teams and said, we want to help you with your graphic design. So if you need a logo, whatever, we're here for you. This is what we specialize in. And that's where they got started. So they've worked with a ton of minor league uh, first baseball teams, and then they've expanded into other sports. But what was interesting about their journey is they started to build things like virtual conferences, content on their site, interviews with minor league sports GMs and marketing managers and, and executives and things like that. And they started to not, not as just the co-founders themselves, but as a company, they started to be a thought leader in the space by providing a forum for thought leadership in their space. And where else can you go? Like if you're the GM of a minor league sports team, where else are you going to go to get information on how to market your team? Well, you're going to go to the place where they interview your peers and colleagues and don't waste your time by interviewing a bunch of people that you don't care about that are in other industries. So you can you can do that thought leadership strategy, whether it's podcasting or anything like that. You can do that at an organizational level, not just at the level of being an individual person doing it. So I think that's the best way to kind of attack that in the in this kind of marketing world that we live in now. Absolutely. That that makes so much sense. And I think um, really just like you said, looking at your company is is the CEO or is there somebody else, whether it's, you know, the chairperson or yeah. um, or, you know, a senior consultant within your company, a senior leader who can kind of be that thought leader in the space, um, be be well known like that, or, you know, you have to position it as an entire company. And I can see how that is a, a bigger lift, but it is possible. And like you said, one of the things that I was thinking as you were talking is if I'm the GM of a minor league sports team, I'm going to think um, the West Michigan Whitecaps. That's the first minor league baseball team I ever went to. Tons of fun. Oh my goodness. Minor league baseball. It, you don't actually watch the game, but all the other things going on <laughs> are super, don't. super fun. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but um, if I'm the GM of the West Michigan Whitecaps and I'm thinking, man, our marketing isn't like I want it to be, what I'm probably going to do, even if I haven't heard of you, I'm going to look at all the all the other minor league teams in my area and be like, wow, they've got really good marketing. I know a person there. I'm going to ask them who they used. And in most most spaces, um, people are willing to provide those referrals and recommendations. It's not like you're competing with somebody else on the marketing side. You know, um, even competitors a lot of times will give you um, referrals, especially if you have a, a relationship with somebody there because people move around so much. And if you're so well networked within uh, an industry because you focused really well, you're always going to be that first referral that gets made. Even if a person didn't work with you themselves, they're like, well, everybody in our space always works with this company. Um, and it's, it's just an absolutely amazing thing when you can be so incredibly well known. And 
whatever industry it can be. I love, you know, I laughed a little bit when you said minor league sports teams. So like that's small, but then I was like, no, wait, there are tons of minor league sports teams, <laughs> right? And yeah, so, and you, you think it's the- a small niche, but it's actually not that small. No. And, and like you said, they started with baseball. So even mm-hmm. more specific with baseball and you, you develop some expertise. And then I would imagine there's probably a lot of overlap in a community between some of the minor league sports teams of different sports that are in that community. Yeah. And, yep. and then you can just slowly expand out. And so it's, it's a relatively simple concept. But again, I would imagine um, for a lot of people, a little bit harder in execution, but that doesn't mean mm-hmm. you shouldn't try. <laughs> no, and and really the successful execution of it a lot of times comes down to picking the right niche, picking a, a you know a space or a category that's small enough to where you get these kind of virtuous effects of spending a lot of time in the same space and working and talking with a lot of the same people. If you're if the space that you're in is too big, you end up not getting any of those virtuous effects, and you don't even know that they really exist. Um, mm-hmm. The example I gave earlier, where I would jump on sales calls and they would scan through my website and they'd know half the people that I produce podcasts for is a good example because I was operating in a small enough space to where if I just showed who my relationships were with, it gave me instant credibility. If you can, if you can have someone on a sales call and they go to your website and look at who your other clients are, and it doesn't give you any credibility, like that's a, that's a sign right there that your space is too big. Absolutely. Right. So that's a good, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Yeah. And, and just thinking about, again, you could start small and then expand bigger, but if you don't start yes. small, it's going to be just really difficult to, to develop any sort of attraction. And mm-hmm. it's, um, it's also just a lot, like we were talking earlier about when your message is too broad and, and you're getting, um, you know, interest in things that you don't want to provide. The more you do the same thing over and over and over again, the more you're known for doing that thing over and over <laughs> and over again. And yeah. then you develop a lot of expertise, a lot of best practices, a lot of industry knowledge. You you're aware of all of the conversations that are happening. You're you're going to be cutting edge as opposed to if you're spread out too thin, you're never going to get deep enough into any of the, the spaces that you want to be to develop even the, you know, the expertise to be able to just pick up the phone and have a conversation with somebody about what's going on in that space. Yeah. And, and if you if you have that level of expertise, when you do jump on the phone with somebody, even when you have a casual conversation, you say things that shock them. Absolutely. Because you'll end up coming out of it. Yeah. Like the, the more you do the same thing, I think it was David Baker that said that, you know, expertise comes from pattern recognition, doing the same thing over and over again until you recognize what doesn't fit. And then you chase that rabbit hole down until you find out some new and interesting insight about your industry. And if you never repeat the, the same patterns enough times, you don't get that level of insight. But when you do have that level of insight, if you jump on a call, even if it's just a casual call with someone who could be a client now or tomorrow, when you say things, they're like, holy cow, I've never heard anybody say that before. Well, that comes from the level of focus. If you don't focus, you don't come up with those levels of, of insights. And when you have those conversations with people, they come away thinking, well, that's a nice guy or a nice gal, and he's got a good service, but you know, I don't really hear anything special. Like You should be able to jump on with an ideal client and say something that shocks them. And if you don't, then maybe you haven't spent enough time in that one space to have really bold polarizing opinions. But if you do something often enough, you're going to, you're going to start branching off from other experts in your space. And you're going to have what might be controversial polarizing opinions in that space. So if you don't have bold opinions, it might just, it's probably just because you're not spending enough time in one particular place or one focus uh, to have enough, you know, enough reps under your belt, so to speak. Um, and, and David Baker in that same book, the business of expertise he just pointed out, look, if you're if you're going after enough industries that you're learning on the job, 
I said, just understand that your client is paying you to learn. <laughs> they think you're paying for their for your expertise, but what they're actually paying you is to learn. And if you're not honest about that, you're doing them a disservice. And I read that and I'm like, whoa, that is a uh, man, that'll hit you right in the heart. I mean, I, I wasn't doing that at the time, but I'm like, man, thank God I already focused before I read that that sentence. Absolutely. It's so funny to think about because, um, for example, I've had a lot of clients in two specific spaces that I, just off the top of my head in wealth management mm -hmm. and in media. And mm -hmm. You know, the first couple of clients you have, um, you're you're learning a lot. You're you're figuring things yeah. out, and then once you've had a few, I you know what questions to ask. You have some stories to tell. You have some examples. You know what the common challenges are that people are facing. You know what they're probably going to be willing to do in terms of um, your recommendations, and you know which recommendations they're probably not going to take. So you might not even bother giving them, and <laughs> just all of all of that learning. Um, if then you never work with that industry again what's the point? And it also gets very stale. And so, um, you know, if you, then it's five years before you work with somebody in the industry, industry again, things have probably changed. And so really having that, that focus, it's not only helpful in terms of getting clients, but in terms of more effectively servicing those clients and being, um, you know, being a resource for them. It's, it's always nice when you were working with a lot of similar people. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And I think the biggest, the biggest reason that we as people and organizations don't do that, because I think we see the benefits and, and we may not see all of them, but we see enough to go, you know, I really should be focusing more on who my ideal client is. And that sounds great. What the problem is, the challenge that we encounter as we get further down that road is our own creative itch. Mm -hmm. especially if you were in, you know, let's say, <laughs> consulting or wealth management, something like where you, where you want, you want to flex your brain muscle sometimes, like you just want to do something different. Um, the most successful people that I know that are really good at running very focused businesses, they found ways to scratch that creative itch within their focus. And they've e either they do it through podcasting. You know, one of my clients uh, a couple of months ago told me, he's like, I wish I could construct my entire business. So all I did was record three podcasts a week. Well, because that's where he, like he, that's where he gets to flex his creative muscles and have interesting conversations. Um, so you can find it like in how you market the business. Like you can flex your creative muscles there. I know a lot of guys like that. Um, or you can go to finding the, the subtle variations within the clients that you do focus on and really dive deep on those. You know, you can serve one industry and there is, if you want to find it, there's an infinite amount of complexity in just one industry. You know, if you really enjoy serving real estate agents or mortgage teams or financial advisors, whatever the case is, if you decide to focus there, like I promise you, there's enough variety in that one, that one industry, that one type of person that you can find ways to scratch your creative itch. You don't have to jump into seven different industries to kind of flex those muscles. Um, once you understand that and you find creative ways to kind of do that and flex your muscles there, you get the best of both worlds, which is a business that's extremely systematic, sells one thing to one type of person, runs like clockwork, predictable income, like all those fun things of having like a very focused business. But then it also is the fun creative side too, because that you have like an outlet for it and you know where that creative energy can flow. Absolutely. I think that is such a great point. And one of the things that people might not realize, like you said, is pulling them in the direction of, of losing focus. Some of the people that I know in the most boring jobs have the most interesting hobbies even outside of work. And, yeah. you know, it's the, it's the accountant who who's like in a rock band or something. And it's like, yeah. 
you've got to have somewhere. I think everybody has creativity within them. Everybody has a desire for variety and for, for things to be interesting. Some people more than others. And I think especially entrepreneurs, a lot of times oh have God, that, yes. that joy of creating something new. And like you said, you could be creating something new within the same space. You could be innovating new ideas. You could be coming up with new solutions. You could be, um, you know, at the, at really the cutting edge of the thought, like, like you were talking about with Mark Benioff and when it comes to Salesforce, um, you know, consistently adding new things to their platform, consistently making a lot of changes and yet still staying within generally the same space. And, um, if you've kind of, you know, gotten pulled, like you said, out of your, your comfort zone or actually into a place, maybe more comfort by doing different mm-hmm. things. Like you said, figuring out what that outlet is that's still safe, that still aligns with the strategy is key. And that kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about next. Um, mm-hmm. You're very into podcasting. Obviously, you've hosted a number of different podcasts over the years, and now you run an agency to help people and companies produce their own podcasts. So how do you feel podcasts fit into that idea of becoming micro-famous? Mm. Well, for me, podcasting was, uh, especially getting pulled into producing them and running an agency, like that was never my intention. So my heart was in, like, I wanted to help coaches, consultants, speakers, trainers, like I wanted them to be able to reach more people with the right content. So I was just starting off in the marketing side of it, just helping them reach more people. What I found is that by experience, the most effective thing I could do out of the whole universe of options was to help them launch a podcast. And then that led down the path to just getting pulled into running an agency. And the reason that is, is just because the the online environment where we're in right now is so saturated. People's attention spans are so short that podcasting is one of the few places where you get any length of time with a prospect. Mm. It's It's been proven through surveys and through technology that people, once they start downloading and they start, they hit play on an episode, on average, they listen to about 80% of that episode. Most podcast episodes are 30, you know, 45 minutes long. So you're talking about a prospect spending a half an hour listening to you. You can't get that in a Facebook ad. You can't get that through paid traffic. You can't get that through a Facebook Live most of the time. You know, I mean, Facebook counts uh, a viewer on your Facebook Live if it flew by in their feed, you know, um, and who knows what else what else they're goosing the numbers on to make us all feel better about our marketing. Um, you know, we can, uh, you can see, like, if you Google search right now, Facebook organic reach, it's basically a bunch of angry graphics that all go down to the right. <laughs> it's not a pretty sight. Um, I think uh, I think this the the CMO of Coke in the UK did a test where he put something organically on their on Coke's business page in the UK, which has I don't know half a million followers or something like that. He got better results by just boosting a post for five hundred bucks. Um, the bottom line is the like social media is like a total pay for pay to play game right now. And so it's like, well, you know, organizations are trying to deal with this and CMOs are trying to deal with this. They're asking themselves like, man, how do you reach people? Like the attention span is fragmented and we can't get anybody's attention. If we get it, we can't keep it. If we keep it, they don't buy anything. Um, so what's the next step? You know, do we run ads? And, you know, for most people in organizations, that's a long road uh, to get an ad to convert. I mean, we're talking about 12 to 18 months on average to find an ad strategy that works. So I think right now uh, there's there's a huge opportunity in podcasting because you get to spend more time with people because that's where they're looking for solutions. They don't come to podcasts just for the entertainment factor, especially entrepreneurs. They're coming to podcasting looking for answers to real problems in their business. And so that's where they're open. You know, That's where they spend time. It's where they're looking for solutions. And so if you have something to sell them, podcasts right now are the best place to get to them 
when they're actually in a state of being receptive to that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. They fully to opted me, in a big opportunity. to listening. Yeah, fully opted in, yeah, mentally and emotionally. And that's mm-hmm. a whole other story, you know. Um, yeah, you have to get people where they want the information and where they're emotionally invested in actually wanting to be approached with something that is a product or service. And podcast interviews and, and hosting a podcast is one of the ways to get to those people. So yeah, that's um, that's how that fits into the concept is, is that, like especially podcasting is a really great forum for delivering information and content that changes people's beliefs over time. Mm. And to me, like if you're a company and you sell a, a SaaS product, let's say, like you've got to change some behavior in that organization for them to get anything out of your product. You can't just sell them the software, walk away, and they get amazing results, right? So imagine getting a hold of a client that's been listening to your podcast for six to 12 months and they understand your beliefs about the world and how business should be run and how your software should be used before they ever sign up for the software. Well, that changes the game. That makes your sales process easier. It makes your marketing infinitely easier. It makes your client engagement and the onboarding process easier and they get better results. So you get better testimonials, success stories, and case studies, which then generate the next round of sales and marketing and makes all that easier. So it's a really awesome virtuous cycle once you get into it by putting out that content that changes beliefs over time. And I think that's one thing that organizations have been really weak at uh, until kind of the age of content marketing. They're just now kind of dipping their toe into it is the goal used to be the sales manager would say, give me the highest number of leads. And the CEO or the CMO would say, okay, throw some money at it. Get, let's get them some leads. Let's pound the phones. Let's get those salespeople some, some calls. And there were like, from there, like that was all the depth there was. There was no paying attention to the quality. It didn't matter, right? Get me some leads. I think now we're getting to the point where people are finding like the light is turning on where they're going, look, I can't just cycle through a sales team. Like these people are like I'm losing people. I can't keep my best salespeople. I can't give them leads they're happy with, like all this stuff. Well, how do you give them leads they're happy with? Well, you give them leads because they're actually leads. <laughs> they've actually they've actually <laughs> expressed interest in what you do and what you sell because they believe some of the same things. That's when it actually makes sales calls easier. And you've got prospects that have been listening or consuming your content for a while, and they believe the same things about the world and about business that you believe. Then when they show up to a sales call, you're not persuading them of very, very basic things. You're starting much further down the line. And then you're getting into the specifics of the solution and how it works to see if now might be the right time for them. So really like podcasting on a very practical level, one of the first things you notice is it changes the entire tone and content of your sales calls. Absolutely. I think anybody who who maybe questions that idea that podcasts can kind of change minds. Look at a lot of the top podcasts are political podcasts. And it's, um, you know, the the number of people who've been brought on a journey uh, of all different sorts, even, um, you know, people who've gotten really interested in criminal justice reform or people who've gotten really interested in, um, you know, immigration. Like there are are podcasts that that take deep dives into these topics and people get really passionate about them. You think about Mm -hmm. um, Serial and how the the guy that basically 
they were talking about whether or not he was um, he was responsible for for the crime. Then you have hundreds and thousands of people who are calling, you know, the prosecutor and the district attorney and like all these you know political leaders trying to see about getting a guy a second trial. And it's mm-hmm. it's through that convincing nature. I think of how many products I've bought because they were advertised on podcasts. I heard that ad over and over and over again in my ears, <laughs> and you know, I bought whatever that whatever that product was. So it it definitely works. And you know, as you were saying, it's it's just a great way to, you know, both kind of get out there in in the world and be talking to people and have that that interesting message. But there's something about um, when somebody, like you said, they, they've they've opted in, they've subscribed, they've decided to listen, and they're they're in a mode of wanting to wanting to hear, wanting to find a solution. And if they are willing to give you that amount of time, and if you're providing value in that amount of time. As you said, the idea of content marketing has been a big theme for the last, I don't know, five, 10 years. And companies are really struggling to think about, okay, what kind of content do I need to come up with? You know, do I need to be writing an ebook every week? Do I need to be, you know, producing white papers? Like there's so many different ways of content and then people aren't stumbling on that content. You're trying to kind of shove it down their throats. Um, (laughs) And most of us like to talk uh, to, you know, whatever level we, we, we like to do that. And <laughs> Some ooh, more than we've others, got yeah. content. We've already produced 40 minutes of content so far, Matt. It's, yeah, it's exactly. miraculous. And it's a whole lot easier also <laughs> than writing an ebook. And yeah. so um, it's a it's a great way also to um, to work out your thoughts. You know, I've spoken to so many interesting people on the podcast and I've been able to learn a lot. I learned something new from every guest that I talked to. And that's also something that is good for me in my work with clients. Um, and so it's it's kind of this, this interesting cycle. When you were talking about uh, number of leads, I had a client that I was talking to a few weeks ago. And last year they spent $15,000 to buy a list. And over a quarter of the names on that list, uh, the numbers didn't work. <laughs> I was oh. like, you, you bought a list like it, in 2019? <laughs> it, was, it wasn't 2020, it was 2019, but still. And it's, I felt really bad for them because, you know, they, they really thought that they were providing a great service to their sales team. And then the team was just calling numbers that didn't have people at the end of them. And so <laughs> really thinking about, do we have the right people? Um, do we know they're real people? Are they going to be open to hearing from us? That's mm-hmm. um, that's a much more fun call to make. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, you couldn't pay me enough to just call a cold list. Not not knowing what I know now, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just such a, you know, a lot of times I, I see people and that's their vision of what selling is. And that's maybe what selling was, you know, a few decades ago. But you see companies that grow really significantly with a relatively small sales team, sometimes without a sales team. And a lot of it is because they're able to attract the right audience so that they don't need to be doing a lot of those low return activities, like calling down a list of, you know, a thousand people. And, you know, there are still some spaces where where you do have to pound the phones like that. And, and, you know, there are people who are really good at that and people who actually enjoy it. I've Mm -hmm. met those people. I am not one of them. Um, But it's not likely going to be a great strategy for your business. And um, those people are rock stars (laughs) and and they are just as rare as rock stars. They're unicorns. That's for sure. I, I had somebody that I worked with. This was years ago. And she, I don't know what it was about her. She was magical. She could get a meeting with anybody on the phone. Like yeah. she, And that's all she did her entire career. She had done this at that point for like 20, 25 years. She just in different industries. She called, 
she would develop relationships with people over time. It wasn't like she'd make one call, though sometimes it was, and she could get meetings. I was like, that is a gift. And she didn't want a promotion. She did all she wanted to do was, if it, and she just wanted to get paid more for it. And she did. And I was like, well, that's, you know, you want to find that person, but, you know, unless you have that person on your team, um, coming up with a method of, of getting in front of the right people is going to be a lot more useful. All right. I've loved our conversation today, Matt. I think we could keep talking for a while, but I'm looking at the clock, so we should probably wind down. Um, so one thing we always like to ask our guests for is another way that people learn uh, in addition to podcasts is books. So do you have any books that you would recommend for our listeners? I do. In anticipation of this, I pulled them out, so I've got them here. Uh, I am heavily, heavily influenced by Al Reese. Um, so he wrote probably my favorite marketing book of all time, The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And then just because we're speaking to organizations, he also wrote a book called War in the Boardroom, which is why left brain management and right brain marketing don't see eye to eye and what to do about it. So, if, so yeah, I mean, part of the toughest part of being in an organization, and, and it's part of the reason why I don't work with larger companies, I only work with entrepreneur-led organizations, is that oftentimes it's the internal struggles within the organization that prevents great marketing from being done because great marketing is polarizing and provocative and all those things. And that does not come out well out of, out of a consensus environment. And so that book really tackles how do you deal with that and how do you lead in such a way that you can actually deliver the marketing message that the environment needs to hear in order for your company to grow without it getting short-circuited by your own <laughs> internal uh, people basically vetoing it. Absolutely. You, you mean that the most interesting marketing isn't going to get approved by the board of, you know, oh. 15 people who are all, um, let's, let's stereotype a little bit, but a lot of times older, a lot of times, you know, they've been in the industry a little bit longer, maybe a little more traditional. And they're also, they're adding a lot of value. They care about the company, but they're going mm -hmm. to naturally be inclined toward a no on the more controversial yes. things. And Always easier to say no. Yes. And, and you're not likely ever going to get uh, in massive trouble. There's there's a lot less risk in no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Those both true. sound like excellent, excellent recommendations. And earlier you had also mentioned David Baker, The Business of Expertise. And that is a, yeah. an, another excellent one that I would recommend. Yeah. yeah. Highly, highly recommend. All right, Matt. If you want people to learn more about you, more about your work, uh, if anybody listening is interested in maybe starting a podcast of their own, where should mm -hmm. they go? Uh, easiest place is getmicrofamous.com just because it has links out to everything from there. Uh, and then if you're interested in content of the book, if you like the ideas of the three stages of influence and how to develop a clear and compelling idea and maybe a little learn a little bit more about how do you use something like podcasting to drive that message to the market over and over again, that's what the book is about. So just go to microfamousbook.com. You can get a physical copy for free if you cover the shipping and we'll get it into your hands. Nice. I think I might send a copy to our marketing team because oh, it just be sounds awesome. like a great, a great resource. I'm a big believer in, um, in understanding, you know, big topics like this and really taking a deep dive into it and figuring out what are the principles that, that I can apply. Like you said, it might not apply. Um, some things aren't going to apply at an organization where they would apply to an individual, but you can always figure out um, what within that principle um, really does work for you. Yeah. Love it. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for speaking with me today, Matt. I'm sure our listeners will really uh, love this episode. I hope so, because I had a blast doing it. <laughs> me too. All right. And thank you to all of those listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything that Matt and I have been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 274. And we will include both the links to his, um, his site and the book. Make sure to tune in on Friday for another inspirational episode. 
And don't forget to check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com insights. If you enjoyed the show today, please recommend us to a friend. That is the best way to help more people discover the show. And if you're not yet subscribed, make sure to do that. That way you'll hear every new episode as soon as it goes live. You can subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. We love, love, love your feedback. You can always leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Or email us with direct feedback, questions, and guest suggestions at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!